Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. When it comes to jokes about musicians, bass players have to be in the top three, right behind accordionists and drummers. Example, what do you call a beautiful woman on a bass player's arm? A tattoo. What's the difference between a vacuum cleaner and a drunken bass player? You have to plug one in before it sucks. What do you throw a drowning bassist? His amp. Thank you. I'll be here all week. Yes, it's true that rock and roll really took off with the invention of the electric guitar, but can you imagine it becoming what it has today without the low, steadying thump of an electric bass played through big cabinets powered by warm-sounding tube amplifiers? I can't. And would rock have become what it has without the lockstep rhythms produced by the bass player and the drummer? Uh Uh-uh. That's why we should step back and offer some respect to those who advance the cause and appreciation of low notes. These are the most influential bass players in the history of alt-rock. This is the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Welcome again, I'm Alan Cross, and today we're going to give bass players their due. There have been shows on guitarists and drummers. There have been programs devoted entirely to lead singers and songwriters. And now it's time to offer up some gratitude to the most influential bass players since the punk rock explosion of the 1970s. I'm going to tell you right now that there won't be anybody like John Paul Jones or John Entwistle or Jack Bruce or Geddy Lee or Roger Waters on this show. Those are classic rock guys who don't need our help in getting any attention. There's no one from Motown here. There's no one from the jazz scene. So Jaco Pastorius fans can take a pill. We're concerned solely with the alt-rock heroes who thumped their way to notoriety and influence. I've picked 10 people, along with some honorable mentions. Now, you may disagree, and that's fine, but one of the purposes of this program is to get people thinking about music, talking about music, and debating music. And besides, everybody loves a top 10 list, right? So here's the criteria. Influence. That's it. The people on this list may not be the most technically adept at their instrument, but they sure as hell inspired a hell of a lot of kids along the way. And that's why I want to start with one of the most primitive and most basic bass players in history, Didi Ramon. This is a guy who took up the bass only after he and his new buddy John Cummings got drunk after work one day and decided to form a band. John, later Johnny Ramon, wanted to play guitar. And Douglas, that's Dee Dee's real name, took up the bass. That was 1974, and neither guy knew the first thing about music, but they didn't care. They just knew that they wanted to make it, even though they couldn't play a note on their new instruments. That was the appeal and the genius of the Ramones. They showed everyone that anyone could do what they were doing. All you needed was the guts to do it. Dee Dee became the main songwriter and the lyricist for the Ramones for 15 years, And yeah, his playing consisted of long runs of the same notes on his original Danny Electro bass. He later moved to a series of Fenders through this fat-sounding Ampeg amp. But, you know, that didn't matter. It was his spirit that counted. And when a young, alienated, disenfranchised kid saw what Dee Dee was doing, well, that was all he or she needed. The 
Ramones from their first album in 1976. Basic rock and roll built on a super basic bass line from Didi Ramone. The second great bass player on my list also couldn't play when he joined his band. Paul Simonon wanted to be an artist, a painter. But when his friend, Mick Jones, offered to teach him how to play guitar if he joined his new band, Paul figured, eh, why not? Punk was all about just doing it, and that's pretty much how he felt. However, Paul was a bit of a bust at the guitar. This is too hard, he complained. So Mick said, all right, well then get a bass. There's two less strings. So he did, and he had to learn on his own. In fact, when The Clash recorded their very first album in early 1977, Paul still really didn't know what he was doing. But by the time The Clash got to their third album, a little more than two years later, Paul was pretty proficient. He'd been absorbing the deep bass sounds he heard coming from the windows of new Jamaican immigrants. It was fat and warm and had a groove unlike anything that came out of Britain. This is how Paul came to write one of the best-known Clash songs, Guns of Brixton. The Clash with bass player Paul Simonon and Guns of Brixton from London Calling, released at the tail end of 1979. Hugely important album, thanks to how it advanced the cause of punk with its sounds and attitudes and influences and its complexities. It's one of the most influential rock albums, period. And by the way, that's him smashing his bass on the cover of London Calling. Certainly one of the most iconic rock photos ever. As time went on, Paul's reggae and ska-influenced rhythms set him apart from most other bass players. And here's a little-known fact. While most other bassists plucked the strings with his fingers, Paul tended to use a pick, and that gave his Fender Precision a more percussive sound. And like D.D. Ramone, he preferred the warmth of big Ampeg amplifiers and cabinets. Peter Hook was another guy who got into music before he knew what he was up against. After seeing the Sex Pistols play in Manchester, he and his friend Barney decided that they could make that kind of noise too. Barney went out and got a guitar, and Peter found a bass. Neither had any money for an amplifier, so they figured out how to wire their gear through the tone arm of the turntable in a console stereo and by one of their families. It was enough. Later, when Joy Division came together, Hooky, like all the other kids inspired by punk, just made it up as he went along. He didn't know what he was doing. He didn't know what he was doing was wrong. His bass was slung far too low for proper technique. His stance was all wrong, and his amp was way too underpowered. When the band rehearsed in a room of a local pub, the drums and the guitars were far too loud, and Hookie couldn't hear himself, that underpowered amp. So, to cut through the din, he started playing his parts far, far higher on the fretboard than normal. Add that in with all the other mistakes everybody was making, and, uh... Well, sometimes when you don't know what you're doing, you end up advancing the entire cause of rock and roll in the process. Joy Division, featuring Peter Hook on bass. Again, not the most adept musician, but his approach to his instrument was so different in his day that he became an idol to many. Later, his work in programming bass lines and drum machines with New Order drummer Stephen Morris made that band into something much more than the sum of its parts. 
So there's how we're going to start this list. Didi Ramon, Paul Simonon of The Clash, and Peter Hook of both Joy Division and New Order. Next, a former school teacher who was the exact opposite of these first three guys. This dude could play. Let's take a journey back to 2003. Canadian teen sensation Avril Lavigne was topping the charts and turning the music industry upside down. But what if I told you that the Avril Lavigne we know and love might not be the same Avril? What? Did Avril die? Was she replaced by a doppelganger? I'm Joanne McNally and I'm doing a deep dive into a notorious internet conspiracy. Who replaced Avril Lavigne? Listen wherever you get your podcasts. This is my list of the most important bass players in the history of alt-rock. Again, technical prowess isn't necessarily important here. It's influence and what these people added to the mix in the evolution of rock since the punk of the 1970s. And we're doing this list more or less chronologically. We need to talk about Sting. When the police first showed up in 1977, they sounded like no one else. They were punky, but tempered with pop. And they had this reggae thing going, which was highly unusual for the day. Eventually, they became one of the leading bands of the New Wave era and were very important in the establishment of the music video and MTV. The singer and bass player was a former school teacher whose real name was Gordon Sumner, but everybody called him Sting because he used to wear this striped shirt that made him look like a long, skinny bumblebee. Sting knew what he was doing because he had already played in a string of jazz bands. He was able to translate that precision into what the police did. Of course, it also helped that he had drummer Stuart Copeland to work with. He had been a big fan of the prog rock bands of the early 70s and worked for a time in a group called Curved Air. The police sold millions of records, and they won all kinds of awards. And then, of course, Sting went solo and established himself as someone who could play the most difficult sorts of music and weird instruments like the lute. I think this is my favorite police song. Listen for the interplay between Sting and Stuart Copeland. This is magic. The Police, from their 1980 album Zenyetta Mondata and Driven to Tears. Amazing playing from everyone, including Sting on bass. For the number five position on my list, I'm going to throw in Jean-Jacques Burnell. He was the bass player for The Stranglers. Again, not the most technically precise guy out there, even though he was trained on the classical guitar. This explains two things. His bass lines tended to be more melodic, and second, the sound he got from his instrument was very aggressive. Now, that sounds like a contradiction, but it's not. Like Paul Simonon, he used a pick. And to get that growly song, he played very close to the guitar's bridge and drove his amplifier into distortion territory. And this, in many ways, redefined what a bass player could do within a band. This is a great example of what I'm talking about. It's The Stranglers and Peaches from 1977. All the the Stranglers, featuring bass player J.J. Burnell and Peaches from a 1977 album, Ratus Norvedicus. Okay, the first half of this list of great and important bass players is all men. Now, here's a woman who broke all kinds of stereotypes. Back in the 70s, girls were just supposed to sing. If they wanted to, well, they might strum an acoustic guitar. 
But Punk tore up all those rules. Again, the primary premise of Punk was, if you have something to say, say it. All you need is the guts to do it. When the Talking Heads moved to New York, people were shocked to find that their bass player was a woman. Very few people had ever seen such a thing before. Now, of course, today there are thousands of female bassists. We don't even think about it anymore. But in 1976 and 1977, no way. It was somehow unladylike. It was almost as bad as a woman playing the drums. Now, this alone would earn Tina Weymouth a spot on this list. Her very appearance as a bass player with the Talking Heads exploded so many stereotypes and broke down so many silly preconceptions. But she was also very good. Few new wave bands had a bass player as funky as Tina. Talking Heads and Life During Wartime featuring bass player Tina Weymouth. Seems ridiculous to talk in those terms today, but she was one of the leading suffragettes for the cause of the female bassist back in the day. I mean, think of all the female bass players that have come since. Melissa Oftemar from Hole and the Smashing Pumpkins, Darcy Retsky of the Pumpkins, Kim Deal of the Pixies and the Breeders, Kim Gordon of Sonic Youth, Nikki Moniger and Silver Sun Pickups, Sean from White Zombie. And a lot of that started when people first heard and saw Tina Weymouth with the Talking Heads. Okay, I'm going to throw a curve for person number seven on this list. His name is John Wardle. And if you don't recognize that name, it's okay because you have to be an uber geek to know him by that name. This guy is a bass player's bass player, which is why I have him on my list. Professionally, he went by the name of Ja Wobble. He was one of the four Johns that hung out together in the punk days. There was John Lydon, who would become Johnny Rotten and then Johnny Lydon again. John Ritchie, who became famous as Sid Vicious. A guy named John Gray that we don't know anything about. And this John, John Wardle. The name Ja Wobble came early. It could be because of his playing style that some characterized as, uh, well, kind of wobbly. Some say it was Sid that did that. When he was drunk, all he could manage was Ja Wobble. But whatever, there were too many Johns in the group, so calling one Ja kind of made things a little easier. When the Sex Pistols broke up, Johnny Lydon turned to Ja to be the bass player in his new group, Public Image Limited. It was a risky choice because Ja tended to be a little prickly. There's one story that he hated a particular drummer so much that, uh, well, he set him on fire. Jaw's playing was heavily influenced by dub, that Jamaican style of playing that could be slow and low with a deep, deep groove. After leaving Public Image, he got deep into world music, long before many people working with musicians from as far away as China. Actually, his most important work came in this area. People have sought him out to play on their recordings and for collaborations. He is very skilled, very versatile. And to think it all started as a bunch of thugs hanging out together. Here's Wobble with Public Image. This is from 1978. Public Image Limited, featuring bass player Ja Wobble. He's number seven on my list of alt-rock's 10 greatest bass players. Three more to go, and I have a feeling that I'm going to get some pushback about number eight. We'll see. That's next. This is a list of alt-rock's most important bass players. It's my list, so it's rather arbitrary. 
You may disagree, but that's fine. In fact, that's good. Anything that gets people talking about music in intelligent ways is always a good thing. My choice for number eight on the list is Simon Gallup of The Cure. Again, not the most technically adept guy, but his unique style and approach to the bass more than made up for it. Gallup was The Cure's second bass player. He came on board in 1979, but then he was fired in 1982 when he got into a fistfight with Robert Smith over who was supposed to pay a bar bill. But two years later, he was back in the band and has been there pretty much ever since. In addition to playing bass, Simon also played bass pedals during live gigs and keyboards when necessary. He plays a variety of models, but he seems to like the Gibson Thunderbird, which is why the company created a special model just for him in 2004 to commemorate 25 years in The Cure. Now, of course, The Cure is one of the most influential alt-rock bands of all time. And the rhythm section, especially the bass, has been a big part of their most important songs, like this one from 1985. The Cure, featuring Simon Gallup on bass. My pick for number eight on this list of alt-rock's most important bass players. For number nine, it's got to be Flea. Michael Peter Balzeri was born in Australia. His stepfather was a jazz musician, and a lot of guys were always coming over to the house to jam. And that's how Flea's first instrument became the trumpet. In fact, he didn't even like rock. He was so serious about jazz that he wanted to do that for a living. It wasn't until he met two kids at school, Anthony Kiedis and Hillel Slovak, that he began to even listen to rock with any kind of seriousness. Hillel was in a band called Anthem, and after they lost their bass player, he asked Flea if he'd like to try. Influenced by his years of jazz study, Flea developed a style of slapping his bass, which gave everything a new jumpy, funky sound. He studied Bootsy Collins, a former member of George Clinton's band. Sly and the Family Stone became a favorite. After Anthem, Flea soon found work in a hardcore band called Fear and was actually offered a job by Johnny Lydon in Public Image Limited after Jaw Wobble bailed. But in the end, he returned to his buddies Hillel and Anthony, and they became the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Here's where Flea's slap bass style was at its peak. It's the Mother's Milk album from 1989. The Chili Peppers and Higher Ground from Mother's Milk. Now, if you're a fan of Flea, you'll know that his playing style has changed dramatically since then. The slap style has been all but abandoned in favor of a more melodic approach. Fewer notes, more emotion, less frantic. He became a fan of Simon Gallup and the way he played with The Cure, and how Peter Hook did what he did with Joy Division. And in the process, Flea became one of the most copied bass players, not only in alt-rock, but in all of rock in general. I love this quote from Bass Player magazine. Any instrument is just a vehicle to express who you are and your relationship to the world. No matter what level you're doing it on, playing music is an opportunity to give something to the world. That's Flea. And Flea has brought something to a lot of worlds. He played with everyone from Jane's Addiction to Young MC. All he really wants to do is play. And finally, the 10th guy on my list. And no Primus people I wouldn't even think of leaving out Les Claypool. Out of all the guys I've seen play, I've never seen a guy attack a bass like Les. 
He can rock out. He can get super funky. He strums the strings. Some of his guitars have a whammy bar, which is really weird, so he can bend notes in unusual ways. Sometimes he just slaps the strings. On other occasions, he just taps them with his fingers. And live, he does all this while singing lead. Sometimes the notes are pure. Other times they go through a series of processors and distortion pedals. Some of his guitars have the standard four strings. He also plays a six-string bass when the need arises, or, if necessary, any variety of stand-up basses. Now, there's a story that says he was offered the job of bassist in Metallica after the death of Cliff Burton, but he didn't get the job because, and this is a quote, he was too good. This is my favorite Primus track of all time. It's from a 1992 album entitled Sailing the Seas of Cheese, and it features a great guest vocal performance from Tom Waits. Just listen to the technique. That blank still freaks me out. Les Claypool and Primus with Tommy the Cat. And that's it for my completely subjective list of the most important bass players in the history of alt-rock. They are, and again in no particular order, Didi Ramone of the Ramones, Paul Simonon of The Clash, Peter Hook of Joy Division and New Order, Sting, J.G. Burnell of The Stranglers, The Talking Heads' Tina Weymouth, Ja Wobble, The Cure's Simon Gallup, Flea, and Les Claypool. Again, you may disagree, and that's good. You know, if we had more time, I would include a few more people in my list of alt-rock's greatest bass players. Mark King of Level 42 doesn't get nearly the respect he deserves. Stunning slot bass technique. Tony Levin, the guy in Peter Gabriel's band, is a joy to listen to and to watch. Whenever I see Gabriel in concert, it's him I'm paying attention to. Kim Gordon of Sonic Youth. How many women, how many guys did she inspire? Same with Kim Deal of the Pixies. And if you want to include Cliff Burton from Metallica on this list, okay. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts.